Welcome to another episode of the Zach Hiley Show. Today, I have the honor of being with Dr. Charles Yeo. So a little bit about Dr. Charles Yeo. So Dr. Charles Yeo is a hepatopancreaticobiliary surgeon here at Jefferson. He was born in East Orange, New Jersey, and attended Spring Valley Senior High School in Spring Valley, New York. He received his undergraduate degree from Princeton University in 1975, summa cum laude, with an A.B. in biochemistry. Dr. Yeo graduated in 1979 from Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, being awarded the Upjohn Achievement Award, and he was elected to the Alpha, Omega, Alpha, and Phi, Beta, Kappa. While completing his internship and residency in general surgery at Johns Hopkins Hospital, he pursued a one-year research fellowship at the SUNY Downstate Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. Dr. Yo joined the faculty of the Johns Hopkins University as an instructor and assistant chief of service in the Department of Surgery in 1985 and rose to the rank of professor of surgery in 1996. In 1997, he became professor in the Department of Oncology. Dr. Yeo directed the Pancreatic Center Interdisciplinary Working Group at Johns Hopkins and served as the Surgical Clerkship Coordinator and Surgical Curriculum Consultant. In 2002, Dr. Yeo was named to an endowed chair at Johns Hopkins, becoming the inaugural John L. Cameron, MD, Professor of Alimentary Tract Diseases. On October 1, 2005, Dr. Yeo was named the 8th Samuel D. Gross Professor and assumed the chairmanship of the Department of Surgery at Jefferson, now Sidney Kimmel Medical College of Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He currently serves on the Board of Trustees of the Thomas Jefferson University Hospitals and as the Senior Vice President and Chair of Enterprise Surgery for Jefferson Health and 18 Hospital System. Dr. Yeo has offered, authored over 650 peer-reviewed scientific papers, 120 book chapters, and over 24 books or monographs. Dr. Yeo is also known as the Whipple King, having completed over 1,840 Whipple procedures and treated over 3,000 patients with pancreatic and related cancers. Thank you so much, Dr. Yeo, for taking the time to speak with me today. Zach, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for the invitation. It's great to have you. And I also wanted to mention all proceeds from this episode go to the Friends Against Pancreatic Cancer Fund and the Doctors Francis and E. Rosado Fund for Surgical Education and Research. So the first question I want to start out with is, what is hepatopancreaticobiliary surgery? Did I even say that right? You said it well, and it, it's exactly what it says, I think. Um, when we go into medical school, we learn a new language and the language we learn is sort of the scientific medical language. So HPB surgery, which is what you asked about, hepato deals with the liver, pancreatico deals with the pancreas, and biliary obviously deals with the um, bile ducts. So this is largely surgery that involves the right upper quadrant of the abdomen. Got it, got it. And you're known so well for this thing called the, the Whipple procedure. Can you tell me a little bit about that? I don't I have no idea what the Whipple is. So the Whipple procedure is a complex elementary tract operation that's used to remove the head, neck, uncinate process of the pancreas. It's typically performed for patients that have pancreatic cancer or any of the other three periampulary tumors, and that involves cancer of the ampulla, cancer of the duodenum or cancer of the distal bile duct. It's a, um, it's a complex operation that is divided into two phases or stages. First is the extirpative phase where you actually remove the tumor. And second is the reconstructive phase where you reconstruct the GI tract 
um, in a sense, uh, redo the plumbing of the GI tract so the patient can eat and drink normally. Mm -hmm. Wow. How long does this procedure usually take? Well, yesterday's case on a 310-pound gentleman took about 10 hours. But in someone of normal body habitus, say a, a, a Philadelphian uh, who is uh, six foot tall and weighs maybe 180 pounds, um, you know, it, the operation can be done safely in five, six, or seven hours. And this is maybe a naive question, but why is surgery more difficult on people who have a bigger body habitus or it takes longer? Yeah, um, because we do the operation by making an incision. Um, people that are incredibly heavy or morbidly obese have a large abdominal panis. There's literally uh, inches and inches of, of what we jokingly call insulation. Others would call adipose tissue or fat to get through. And then we have to change how we do the operation. In a sense, we have to use longer instruments and we have to use more complex retraction systems to hold the abdominal wall open so that we can get down to, uh, and do the operation. And is there a greater chance of morbidity and mortality with obese patients? Ab absolutely. And, and that's true not only with the Whipple operation, but quite honestly, really, with any surgical procedure. The, the patient's... Um, have more difficulty with post-operative ambulation. They have a higher risk of VTE, venous thromboembolism. They have a higher risk of pneumonia. And they have a higher risk of uh, superficial wound infection, problems with um, healing the wound sort of from the skin down because there's just more tissue there and that tissue gets devascularized and there's more, uh, more space for uh, uh, infection to set in. And the Whipple procedure, this is an open procedure, as in you're making an incision and you're not using kind of any cameras or anything like this. Um, when Dr. Alan Oldfather Whipple first reported his first three cases of the Whipple operation in 1935, it was all open. And that's how I trained open. And that's how I continue to do the operation. Um, some patients that are of good body habitus and some skilled surgeons have now gone ahead and done successfully a laparoscopic or a robotic Whipple procedure. And um, my hat's off to them. Um, I'm at the end of my career and uh, my learning curve to learn to do laparoscopic or robotic Whipples is not something that I intend to do. But there are places that, um, that do focus on selected patients, and that's the critical element here. Not everybody is a candidate for minimally invasive surgery or minimally invasive Whipple procedures. What would make you not a candidate for a minimally invasive Well, for surgery? example, the fellow we did yesterday where um, obesity, prior chemotherapy, prior radiation therapy, very, very inflamed and fibrotic tissue planes such that uh, it's – and his size – uh, makes it impossible, really, to do a safe Whipple procedure. There would be the risk of terrible vascular injury, and it would also be uh, almost beyond the limits of retraction to do a successful robotic Whipple on the fellow that we did yesterday. And just educate me a little bit more. What causes someone to need this Whipple procedure? Is it you're at a certain stage of pancreatic cancer? Has it has there been metastasis? What is at what stage is someone a good candidate for the Whipple procedure? Yeah. So the the Whipple procedure is 
done not only for cancers, but also for selected benign diseases. Uh, there are benign tumors that live in grow in the head of the pancreas that we would uh, want to take out so the tumor doesn't grow larger, um, cause problems with biliary obstruction or pancreatitis. Um, but in pancreatic cancer, we operate on patients with gland-confined disease, disease that has not metastasized to the liver, to the lungs, or other places. And there's really two groups of patients that we operate on currently the first would be those who we um, do what's called a surgery first approach where we operate first, remove the tumor, and then it's recommended they receive postoperative adjuvant chemotherapy or chemoradiation. That's the first group. The second group would be patients who have either resectable, borderline resectable, or locally advanced disease where the patients are recommended to have preoperative, pre-surgical uh, chemotherapy or chemoradiation therapy, like the fellow we did yesterday. And then um, subsequent to the patient receiving several months of pretreatment, um, we then operate. Got it. And you, they get this therapy before the surgery in the hopes of maybe you get clearer borders or it's smaller and easier to take out, or is that the hope? Well, a couple things. Um, pancreatic cancer, when it's uh, first diagnosed in many patients, is a systemic disease. There is, even though we can't identify uh, living tumor cells by scan, there have been numerous studies that have shown that circulating tumor DNA exists in the bloodstream. You can find tumor cells in the bone marrow. So that's one rationale for preoperative therapy. That is to get systemic treatment in the patient before you go after the locally confined, the gland-confined disease. Uh, the other reason for preoperative chemotherapy would be if the tumor, based upon its proximity to the essential visceral vessels, and for the medical students out there, we're talking about the common hepatic artery, the superior mesenteric artery, the celiac axis, the superior mesenteric vein, the portal vein, um, those, those big blood vessels that, that carry a lot of blood, um, typically down to the intestines or back from the intestines towards the liver, if those blood vessels are involved with tumor, the tumor surrounding them, then we've learned over the last three decades that we're not going to achieve an R0 or a margin negative resection. And so, and it's important to achieve an R0 margin negative resection uh, to give the patient the best chance of long-term survival. Hence, the rationale for pre-treating such patients with neoadjuvant therapy. How new is doing this neoadjuvant therapy? You know, I remember, Zach, whenever I was in training that um, the thought was, and this is probably in the late 80s, early 90s, um, that it was not appropriate to operate on patients who had received chemo or radiation therapy. It was thought to be too dangerous. And that was uh, something that a few brave surgeons at the time, uh, some of my colleagues at Johns Hopkins, uh, embarked upon and began to operate on these patients um, and f had very good results. Uh, found that the, uh, the risks to the patient were not as uh, overwhelming as, been, uh, as had been uh, supposed. And so um, it's been a paradigm change um, and it, it's a paradigm change for the better. Um, just w one more little piece of knowledge is that when I first got interested in pancreatic cancer, 
which is now 30 plus years ago, the, the overall five-year survival rate was 2%, 2%, you know, which made it one of the most lethal and deadly cancers. Uh, uh, as of just about a month ago, uh, we announced that the f- overall five-year survival rate had risen from 2%, and it's gone up gradually, but this year's data, it's 12%. Wow. That's a six-fold improvement. Uh, we still have a long way to go because the 12% five-year overall five-year survival rate means that 88% of the patients are succumbing. Um, so there's sur- still plenty of opportunity for people to make a difference in this disease, but there's been dramatic improvements. That's a fantastic improvement. I mean, wh- what do you attribute attribute these changes to? Is it this neoadjuvant therapy? Is it better chemotherapy or drugs or anything like that? What do you attribute it to? So it's combinatorial. It's, it's, it's clearly multiple reasons for the improvement. Um, some has to do with improved imaging and um, better understanding of precursor lesions and operating on people before they actually have pancreatic cancer, but when they have a precursor lesion like an IPMN or an SCN or an MCN. That's one one issue, better imaging. Second issue is uh, much better perioperative management, anesthetic improvements, surgical improvements, surgical technique, such that patients um, are, are able to survive major pancreatectomy with very low mortality rates. <clears throat> there was a time in the 1960s and 70s when one quarter of the patients who underwent a Whipple procedure would die postoperatively from complications. And when there were, and at that point, there were people that said the Whipple operation should be condemned and should be prohibited. Should it should not be done? Uh, obviously, we've made terrific improvements. So, <laughs> imaging better perioperative care and better patient selection, and then clearly advances in uh, medical oncology, uh, now some immunotherapy, um, radiation therapy, et cetera. So it's been combinatorial, <clears throat> but, uh, but overall it, it's very gratifying. We still have a long way to go. Mm. So people travel all over the country to have you perform this Whipple procedure. Why do you think that is? And, and how did you become the Whipple king? Well, I would take issue with being called the Whipple, Whipple King. Um, I, I think um, I, was the bene- I was the beneficiary of superb training and great mentoring. And um, I, I come from a school of surgery led by John Cameron, who I had the privilege of holding the first professorship in his name. And it was Dr. Cameron who really put the Whipple operation back on the map, along with a few of his contemporaries. And so I, I, I'm not the Whipple King. I, I am a, a, I am a, a Whipple, uh, one prince? of many princes. Got yeah, it, okay. I would say a, a prince or maybe a duke or something <laughs> like that. Because <laughs> um, uh, there are many, many people across the globe who are, um, who are really very, very good at doing this operation. Um, you're right. I've been blessed and, and there's many reasons for it with a, a, a career where I, I have had people come uh, to Philadelphia, before that to Baltimore to have me do their surgery. And a lot of it has to do with um, some of its word of mouth, some of it's the internet, some of it clearly is um, our, uh, our, our work in uh, defining the molecular genetics of pancreatic cancer. Um, we had a very early NIH grant back in the early 90s. Uh, it was called Correlates and Treatment of Pancreatic Cancer. The NIH asked us to 
to, they asked, they had put out an RFA, a request for uh, awards, and, and we responded. We had the lowest score in the nation, which is a good thing, and, and that led us to getting funded by the NIH. And I was, uh, I was really the, uh, I was sort of the manager of the team. I, I was not the star by any means. I pulled together bright young scientists at Johns Hopkins at the time, and we went from cytogenetics to basic molecular genetics, and we helped to define the common mutations in pancreatic cancer with the hope that better understanding the genomics of pancreatic cancer, we'd be able to identify actionable mutations such that we would find a therapeutic window for individual patients. This is sort of the forerunner of what now we take so for granted as personalized medicine. So um, I'm not the Whipple King. Um, <laughs> I've been blessed with having people come from all over. Um, and and it, it, it's gratifying. It also, though, raises the, uh, the bar a little bit. It's, it's uh, you know, when, when people travel a long ways, um, you, uh, you, you want them to do well and, and, and you pray that they have good outcomes. You, you, you want to take care of them properly. And a lot of what we've built is, is a team effort. So you're clearly passionate, you've clearly had an impact, and I think you're clearly successful in your field. Let's back all the way up. In medical school, did you know surgery was the thing for you? I'm going to be surgery, I'm going to be do this, all these kind of great things going forward. How did you know? Yeah, Zach, I mean, I've told this story a few times. Yeah. But, um, so if you look back at my high school yearbook, um, and you know, look back at your pictures and you look at yourself and go, oh my God, I look like that. But... Um, I wrote in my yearbook that I wanted to be a dentist. Why did I want to be a dentist? Because my best friend's father was a dentist. I didn't really know any doctors. Um, I grew up in an apartment building in a duplex. My, my, uh, when I was a teenager, my family first lived in a, a, a single-family home. My father worked for AT&T. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. So I, I really didn't have um, any, any real exposure to individuals that were in the medical profession. You know, I, every now and again, I'd go to see a doctor for a sprained ankle or something. So high school dentist. When I went, when I first got to Princeton, the first week, the orientation week, um, I saw some posters and it was for the pre-dental society. And I showed up at this, uh, meeting of the pre-dental society. I walked into the room and Nobody really looked like me. Nobody really looked normal, I must say. <laughs> and I thought, I, 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 I'm not sure this is what I want to do. I mean, it was silly. It was silly. And then two days later, there was a meeting of the pre-medical society. So I went to that. And quite honestly, at least a few of the people in that room looked like me. It looked like normal people. So um, I thought, well, maybe I want to be pre-med. But at the time I was doing athletics, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, and, uh, but eventually during college, uh, I settled on a career. I knew I wanted to do something in a STEM field. You know, I was good at science. I was good at math. So that's sort of the forerunner. Medical school. I felt so blessed to go to Johns Hopkins. Um, I actually got in off the waiting list at, at Johns Hopkins. So they, I was not one of their top choices. Um, but it was a place that really attracted me. Um, I had met some of the faculty there, some of the surgical faculty, in particular a fellow named J. Alex Haller, who was a pediatric surgeon, and uh, the history of Johns Hopkins really intrigued me. As a sidelight, the history of Jefferson's even older. Maybe we can talk about that Definitely. later. But um, So at Hopkins, 
I loved everything I did. I really loved all the rotations. Um, and I, I was, it was unclear to me what I wanted to do. Um, many people had me going into orthopedic surgery. Um, I think that's what happens if you're an athlete in the past and they sort of pigeonhole you there. Um, I didn't love orthopedics. And um, then I really got fascinated by complex medicine, internal medicine. And truth be told, as a junior in medical school, I actually solicited medical professors, professors of medicine, to write me letters because I was thinking of matching in medicine, in the field of medicine. And then I had a change of heart during one rotation in Baltimore where I went to the Baltimore VA hospital to do a surgical sub-internship. And at least in my mind, I thought that the surgical chief residents that I interacted with, and this is how individuals, you know, at a, t at a formative time really uh, can change the direction of your life. I thought these surgical chief residents were absolutely all-stars. Uh, they knew their medicine. You know, they knew how to take care of common medical problems, but they could operate, they could fix things, they could get people better. And so then I had to weigh a career in surgery versus a career in medicine. And in my naivete, I thought, you know, I know how to treat diabetes because we didn't have many drugs for that back then. I know how to treat asthma. We had like one drug for that. We had theophylline. I know how to do the workup for Delta MS. Uh, we didn't even have CAT scans back then. So um, I knew how to do a neurologic exam. I knew how to treat cellulitis. We had a handful of antibiotics. So in my mind, the field of medicine I had mastered. Now, here's how naive I was. <laughs> I had mastered the field of medicine as a, you know, rising senior medical student, but I knew the field of surgery was going to be a challenge because I didn't know how to operate. So, it, so what I had to do was go to those medical professors sort of with my tail between my legs and say to these really famous medical doctors, you know, I'm sorry, I've decided to <laughs> apply in surgery. Oh, boy. Please, you know please don't send that letter. Don't write that letter for me. And a couple of them tried to talk me out of it. <clears throat> but then I went on and applied in surgery. And I think it was clearly the right, the right decision for me. So I, I didn't go to medical school thinking I wanted to be a surgeon. And I certainly didn't go to medical school thinking I wanted uh, to be a, a Whipple doctor. You think it was the experience when you were actually in the OR with those chief residents that said, you know what, I'm going to be a surgeon. That's what I'm going to do. I think it was it was more than that. I liked the OR, yeah. although as a medical student, as you're probably familiar, Zach, you don't get to do very much. No. And back then, this was before minimally invasive surgery, so there's no laparoscopy. There was no everything was open, and the medical student's job, quite honestly, was to pull on retractors, <laughs> oftentimes not even seeing the field. Um, so you know, looking back upon it. Um, I, I can't say I loved pulling retractors, but I did love seeing what was going on, you know, the little glimpses I could get. And I liked the, um, the technical aspects of it, the detail approach, um, the fact that you could do something with your hands 
and that you could take a person, you know, for example, who maybe had an obstructing cancer of the right side of the colon, and, you know, there's no medicine you can give that patient to make that tumor go away, and uh, you can't shine an x-ray beam on and make it go away, and the patient has a bowel obstruction, you have to do something, so you have, it's like if P, then Q, you have a problem, you can fix the problem and move on, and that was, uh, I think, very gratifying to me. And you loved every single rotation. There was no rotation that you knew, you know, right away, this is not for me. Because I know me personally, my neuro rotation, it was interesting, but I knew I'm not going to be a neurologist. This is not what I'm going to do. I actually loved, uh, I loved, now we didn't have as many basic clerkships as you guys do now. Okay. But but I must say, I loved every rotation. And, and you know, <clears throat> I'll share one sort of personal item with you that um, psychiatry was something that I was sort of dreading. Um, I actually love my psychiatry rotation at the old Phipps Clinic. I, I was put on a ward, which was a very innovative ward of individuals that had um, sexual dysphoria. And this was long before the, you know, I mean, this is cutting edge sort of transgender surgery and, uh, and people with, with, with that sort of... Uh, that sort of mentality. And I found that very, very intriguing. And it turns out in my own personal life, decades later, um, I had a child that ended up being a female to male trans child. Not that I remember anything specific about my psychiatry rotation, but I have thought you know, along the way that, wow, it's hard to believe that in medical school, I had my first um, experience and, and first um, introduction, if you will, to this topic, which was not well known at the time, and I played it out as an adult. I can imagine it was cutting it. Were there other universities or locations doing the similar things? I, I you know, I'm not an expert yeah. on this, but I, I can tell you that the uh, the, the program at, at Hopkins at the time was clearly cutting edge in the U.S. There were a few places in Europe I know that also had uh, had expertise. So let's get into residency. What was residency training like? Yeah, um, <clears throat> so that's a broad question, yes. obviously, Zach. And um, I, I, I would say things have changed dramatically over the last few decades. Um, we used to joke that uh, we were on call uh, every other night and the problem with being on call every other night is you, quote, missed half the cases, end quote, <clears throat> which is not really true yeah. because when you're on call every other night, it meant you were there during the day, basically every day. And yes, you got to go home maybe every other night to get maybe a few hours sleep. We, we joke about it now when I sit around and talk to my contemporaries and my peers <clears throat> because... Um, if you do the math, seven times 24, that's 168. We had a duty hour restriction. We were restricted. We could not work more than 168 hours a week. It was not possible to work more than that. But And that was mandated by the school. <laughs> well, no, that, that's simple math. <laughs> I know, but, I know. Yeah. But there, there was... There, nobody was checking your work hours. I mean, this is prior to work hours. And, you know, I think... So you ask about residency... It, it was pretty brutal. Yeah, the residency was pretty brutal. And um, in our day, at many places, Hopkins being one of them, there was a pyramid. <clears throat> so right now we have, most places, all places have a rectangular system. Um, 
no matter what specialty you go into, but for example, in surgery here at Jefferson today, we take seven categorical interns and those seven interns become PGY twos, threes, fours, five. They may do some lab work, but we, we bring in seven terrific men and women and we graduate those seven people, you know, typically six or seven years later. That's a rectangle, right? It's a rectangular system. We had a pyramidal system. So we had 20-some interns who started the PGY one year, a few of whom were designated to go into ENT or neurosurgery. So it's not that all 20 were competing, but um, a good number of those 20 were competing for what ultimately were three super chief resident jobs. So there was a pyramid and there was something called the cut, C-U-T. There was the cut. And the cut occurred after your second year. And if you wanted to be a surgical chief resident at Johns Hopkins, you had to make the cut. And if you didn't make the cut, you would go elsewhere. And at the time, there were programs. Other universities? Oh, other other universities had the same sort of a uh-huh. deal. Not all, yeah, not all, but and there were there were places where they would accept the Johns Hopkins um, PGY twos, you know, rising threes, and they went on to get great training. And and uh, there were people I was interns with who've had incredibly successful careers, stellar careers in surgery, but who didn't make that Johns Hopkins cut, and. Um, so it, it led to a lot of competition. There was, um, you know, you had to show stamina and enthusiasm and, and, and be a workhorse and, and be involved with writing papers and clinical. There was, there was a lot expected of the people who, who eventually got selected by a process that I have no familiarity with because by the time I was uh, on the faculty, we had transitioned to a rectangular system. But it was, you know, you asked about residency. It was a, an incredibly special learning experience. And um, we took care of patient after patient after patient. There was no quota on how many patients you can have on your service. Um, I vividly remember, you know, if I was on the cardiac service and they were going to do, um, say, eight cardiac open cardiac operations the next day, uh, I was on call that night. I would do eight histories and physicals. The patients would come in the night before. One person, me, would do eight HMPs um, in the evening, and you got very good and very efficient at doing HMPs um, so that the patients would be ready for the OR the next day. And and that was just part of what you were doing on that evening that you were on call because you also had to take care of the patients on the floor and the patients in the cardiac SICU. So, you know, it was a very, very intense, quote, training program, but also doing things that the residents don't do now. Do you think this competitive nature, this intensity of a training program is a good thing? Or do you think comparing it to now, it's better now? Well... Or if you can give me pros and cons. Yeah. I, I, uh, I'm glad that we have progressed beyond the training that, uh, that I endured. Yes. Um, having said that, um, I am delighted that I trained in the era that I did because I think I learned lessons and had experiences um, that were really uh, unmatched. Um, but 
now I'd say, uh, and I think we have one of the top surgical residencies in the country here at Jefferson. Uh, now I'd say there's far more collegiality. Uh, there's far more um, out-of-hospital human activity. Um, you know, I, uh, if you ask me about, for example, I'm a music lover, you ask me about the music of the late 70s and sort of early 80s, it's a little bit lost on me because <laughs> I was not listening to the radio. Yeah. I, I wasn't home. I wasn't, you know, um, if you ask me about movies from that era, I, I, I couldn't tell you about it. Yeah. it, it it's a little bit of a, of a lost era for uh -huh. me. And I think now the residents, you know, they work hard. They get great training. Uh, they're trained in laparoscopy and robotics uh, or intensive care. I mean, training is so much more focused on them, but they also have uh, a better opportunity for personal lives and, and for, you know, being human. Yeah, yeah. And we can skip this question if you don't have any specific answers, but do you have any particularly memorable experiences when you're doing your residency at Johns Hopkins? Anything that stands out in your mind? You know, I uh, there, there are many things that stand yeah. out. Two, two things that come to mind. I was present in the Hopkins emergency room when a, uh, a patient took a, a weapon, a handgun from, a, from an officer and shot the officer five times. And then the officer wrestled the weapon back and shot the assailant, the patient, one time. So um, it, that's fresh in my mind because of the incident we recently had at Jefferson where there was a, a shooting in the hospital. I mean, those, thing, those are things you don't forget. And that happened during my uh, JAR year, my junior assistant resident year, which is PGY2. So, and that was in the ED. Uh, another amazing recollection I have is of a, um, a white Cadillac convertible with red interior. So picture this now, a white Cadillac, red interior, drives through the doors of the... Hopkins emergency room. Back then, the Hopkins emergency room was up a little ramp, and there were these these double doors, glass doors that opened, and the Cadillac literally comes through the doors, going relatively slowly, and stops. And uh, I happened to be on call in the uh, ED that night in the emergency room, what we called the axe, the accident room, and the fella who was driving the Cadillac had been stabbed in the heart. And he had a single stab wound to his chest. He, it happened a few blocks away from the Hopkins axe. He drove himself in his Cadillac to the Hopkins axe and then sort of passed out on the way up. Fortunately, his foot sort of came off the accelerator. So he basically self-delivered himself to our emergency room where we operated upon him and saved his life, brought him wow. upstairs, median sternotomy, and we closed a single stab wound to the right ventricle. Uh, the, for the medical students, again, the right ventricle is the anterior most part of the heart. And it, you know, when you get stabbed anteriorly, it usually goes through the RV because the LV is posterior. And um, that was a great save. That was an absolutely great save. But you know, thinking back upon it, um, you almost have to have that scenario in order to save somebody with a stab wound to the heart. So you're saying if we get stabbed in the heart, we should drive our car <laughs> through the emergency room doors. Please, please don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. And so, oh, that's, that's crazy. 
And then the 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 shooting in the in the ED when when that happened, did you guys rush in and kind of try to do something there? Or we did. We heard it was interesting. We heard five shots, pow 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 yeah. pow. Then a little bit of a delay, little gap, and then pow. So we counted six. Yeah. And the, the Baltimore police officers carried weapons that had six bullets in them. So, um, yes, we all ran. Yeah. Ran to it. We ran <laughs> to it. Um, you know, we're there to help people. Yeah. And, and quite honestly, um, it, it was it was amazing. Um, both of the uh, individuals uh, did not survive. The, the police oh. officer with five bullets in him uh, actually survived longer than the other guy because when the police officer got the weapon away from the assailant, from the patient, he, he hit him in the chest, and it was a, it was a bad injury. Um, when the patient shot the cop, there were some extremity injuries, and uh, I've never seen such an outpouring. You see it on the news all the time, but they, um, they quickly ran out of blood in the blood bank, and they asked... Uh, uh, they asked for more blood, and hundreds of Baltimore wow. City police officers came to the blood bank to donate blood. I mean, it, within hours, there was a line of people, do, police officers donating blood. So that was a, a real tragic event. But that's amazing that this, all these people would come together to kind of help someone. It almost speaks to the hospitals and your career, right? Our career. It's this kind of amazing thing of people coming together to help other people. I think it's fantastic. So let's go more into your specialty, right? So you're in residency. Do you find a passion for kind of these pancreatic procedures and the biliary system during residency, or is it kind of your experiences afterwards? Yeah, it, it's very much the latter, Zach. Um, so I, again, sort of as a medical student, I really enjoyed everything I did in my training uh, from ENT surgery to thoracic surgery, vascular GI, thyroid, parathyroid, et cetera. And, um, in that era, it was less common for people to do fellowships. I didn't do a specific ACGME-approved fellowship, although my super chief year, which we called the Halstead resident year, I did six months of advanced GI surgery, but I also did six months of advanced vascular surgery. So whenever I graduated from my residency program, my little uh, certificate for what it's worth, says I was a general and vascular surgeon, and I had competency in thoracic surgery as well, <clears throat> at least in the mind of, of my mentors. And for the first few years of my career, um, I, I was focused on being a clinician scientist. I wanted to have a career in academics. Um, I, uh, I, I heeded the advice of my mentors, thinking that uh, leadership was something I wanted to, to do. I was very much involved with education. I was the, um, the educational coordinator for surgery and the curriculum consultant, and that was great fun for um, 17 years or so. Um, but my early clinical work spanned doing thyroidectomy, mastectomy, fixing hernias, operating on gastric cancer, colon cancer, doing fempop bypasses, fixing abdominal aortic aneurysms, and every one of those operations. So you can see that spans a huge practice. Uh, all those operations are done um, open, you know. Um, and so, and, and I enjoyed doing all that and doing the teaching. And I had a laboratory that I was studying GI hormones uh, based upon my uh, experiences with Downstate Medical Center and, again, some of my mentors, uh, people like Mike Zinner and others. But 
what really changed my career trajectory was something I alluded to previously, Zach, and that is the NIH uh, back in that day, every two weeks would put out something uh, in paper because this is before the internet. Uh, they, they would, and it would come to your office and it was the NIH guide type thing. And in the NIH guide, I saw the RFA. I, I saw that the NIH had set aside monies in about 1990 to further study pancreatic cancer. They recognized pancreatic cancer as a disease that needed attention. And I was not working on pancreatic cancer. I had operated on very few patients with pancreatic cancer in my training, although Hopkins had, uh, John Cameron had become the chief and he was building a huge practice. So I actually um, was very intrigued by the opportunity to submit a grant that was completely outside my expertise. Um, and I did what any, um, I would say, I did what any manager, what, what any, not, not quarterback, because the quarterback is skilled. Um, I, I did what any, anyone at Hopkins would do, I think, and that is I reached out to the young stars that I knew in pathology and, and medical oncology and we had a couple meetings. This is way before Zoom, so we did all the meetings in person. And um, I, I found that there was interest. Um, and the, the reason why there was interest was because Bert Vogelstein and Ken Kinsler had put the molecular genetics of colorectal cancer on the map. And we, we got together a few times and we said, we could do the same thing. We could basically duplicate what they've done for colorectal cancer, only we could do it with people who are in their 30s as opposed to people who are a generation older. And then somewhat sheepishly, I went into my chairman's office, Dr. John Cameron, and I said, uh, Dr. Cameron, I noticed this in last week's NIH guide. Um, there's a pot of money that the NIH is offering for... Um, pancreatic cancer research. I've put together a team. Um, I'd like to submit a letter of intent and then submit the grant. And John looked at the materials and said, go for it. And we did that. You know, we submitted the letter of intent. Um, we wrote the grant. Um, I vividly remember driving that grant down to Bethesda from Baltimore uh, and I think you had to submit something like 30 copies of the grant. So, it, you know, you have a document that's one inch thick. Um, this is before, you know, PDF files. So you you take that document, you make 30 copies of it, you, you collate them together, you put them in a big box. And of course, you know, we didn't have this grant ready two weeks before the deadline. We, we finished the grant the night of the, de the deadline. And it was due down there the next day, so um, I drove the. Who am I going? Who's going to drive it down? You know, it, it it's also gold. Car, right? car service. You know, so I drove the grant down. I double parked in front of a building. It, you know, all the buildings at the NIH have numbers, so it was like you know, building I forget forty two or whatever. I'm making that up. Double parked, walked in, carrying my box. There was a table there. It was like a sort of a gymnasium type thing. And um, I said, I'm here to submit my grant, thinking they were going to, you know, welcome me. Bow down. Yes. And the guy turns and says, put it over there in that pile. 
And lo and behold, there was a pile of, you know, hundreds of grants. Now, it just wasn't this pancreas grant. This was an NIH deadline. So, But there was a pile of boxes and containers God. of grants. And he, he just said, put it over there. You're good. And that was a little bit dis- disappointing, dis- you know, concerning, because I thought, oh, my God, there's, there's no way. But um, drove home. And, you know, then you wait months and months, and we had the best score. We had what, what you know, in, in NIH parlance was the lowest score. So mm-hmm. we had the lowest numeric score, which was the best score. We were fully funded uh, for five years, and that changed my career. That, wow. that clearly changed my career. So um, that's how really I, I, I developed my focus on pancreatic cancer. It had nothing to do with high school, yeah. college, med school, per se. And at what age did this happen? This kind of, it's, almost, it's not a career switch, but it's a different angle. It's not a 180-degree turn, but maybe it's a 15-degree turn. So doing the math, I was 37. Wow. Yep, 37. 37. And so you start doing this. You're given the grant. You start doing the research and all these kind of things. And do you find yourself enjoying it? Yeah, it was, it was really transformative. Um, we had regular meetings. Um, we um, focused on trying to correlate findings we had molecularly with patient outcomes. Uh, we, um, we were in the process of starting a number of prospective randomized trials, um, which I had the privilege of either working on or being the PI on. And that really was, um, I think, paradigm changing in, in the field of pancreatic surgery. Uh, and in the treatment of pancreatic cancer patients, so um, it, it it was it, it was really a very very important time in my life, um, and, and I'm very grateful that I had the opportunity to do that. So the grant comes to an end. Where you said five years, it was right. Yeah, we re- we renewed, renewed. it. Renewed, got it. We got renewed it. it, and then we got a SPORE grant, which is a special program of research excellence. Um, and the grant continues at Hopkins t- to this day. Wow. And the people that worked on that grant, some of whom have retired, you know, the, the initial people, um, a few people have passed away. Um, but it spawned a whole generation of pancreatic cancer researchers, not only at Hopkins, but here mm-hmm. at Jeff and other places uh, where people have gone on and, and have interest in pancreatic cancer and continue to be funded to this day. So it was, it, it was, a, it was. A, a good thing that we did. And was there ever a moment, ever a thoughtful decision, you know, I'm going to continue going down this path, I like this path, or maybe I'll go back to what I was doing before, or was it kind of you just kept taking one foot in front of the other? Because I'm wondering, because this is a big career move, I think, right? And I'm wondering how you come to this decision or if there's any thoughts about making this kind of decently big decision about your life. Yeah, I mean, so I, um, I think you rely upon your own judgment and the judgment of your mentors and people who you, uh, who you really respect. I would say that even, even, uh, even after receiving the NIH funds, I continued actually to do mainly alimentary tract surgery. I would do an occasional uh, breast operation mastectomy. I, I, I limited my practice. I stopped doing vascular surgery. I continued to do inguinal hernias and ventral hernias, for example. Um, when I got the opportunity to come here to Jefferson in 05, uh, a person that I really respect and admire um, sat me down and talked to me about what it meant to be a chairman and what it meant to lead men and women and, and how much gratification you could get out of that. And he, he told me something that I'll never forget. He said, you know, Charlie, you, you really are a good surgeon. 
you 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 love operating, but if you're going to be a chairman, you need to narrow your focus um, surgically, and and you need to um, to to not be. He didn't. He didn't use the word sort of discombobulated or frenetic, but I, that was what he meant. That that I needed to, to focus on one specific area of medicine because I was going to have a lot of um, of responsibilities in education and administration um, for a department, and so I heeded that advice. Mm. And and you decided, you know, this is the thing I'm going to do. I'm going to focus on these elementary procedures and things like that. I'm going to focus on that. The, on the HPB procedures. On the HPB procedures. That's a better way to say it. And we learned what that is, so now I can say that. That's perfect. And just, again, because I'm naive on this field, how do you go about, as an attending, kind of making these decisions? Do you say, only schedule these cases for me? Do you say, I'm only doing these procedures, don't do these procedures, don't give me patients that, you know, have kind of a... AAA or something like that. Yeah, well, that um, so that's a bigger question about how you orchestrate patient inquiries about diseases, right? And so we have we have online scheduling. We have schedulers. If someone calls and says they want Doctor Yo to you know to take out their right lung, my my clinical coordinator would say, well, Doctor Yo doesn't do that. Um, and, and we have special templates. Um, so you want to operate within your field. And, you know, we have many of our faculty now are specialty trained. Uh, even though they may have trained in general surgery, they've gone on for additional specialty training. And they do limit their practice to certain things that are within the area of their expertise, their knowledge base, et cetera. So that, that's not as big a problem. As a chairman, really not a day goes by where I don't get an inquiry from someone, typically someone I don't know, that says, you know, my mom has X. Um, will you see her or who would you recommend? And that X could be a medical disease. Mm-hmm. It could be a urologic disease. It could be a cancer. Wow. It could be a surgical. And so that's just you rely upon your network and, you know, you, you answer every one of those and you refer the patient to the proper Jefferson expert. Mm-hmm. Um, but not a day goes by that that doesn't happen. Go into your career nowadays. Can you take me through an average week of what it's like to be a chair of surgery? What days are in the clinic? What days are in the OR? What days are administrative? Uh, I operate, uh, typically I operate three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. As we discussed earlier, the operations usually take somewhere between four and ten hours, so you have to block out uh, quite a few hours. I I start my uh, operating time uh, usually around seven o'clock. <clears throat> Realistically, that's anesthesia preparing the patient, so the operations don't start till eight. <clears throat> you sign the patient in at six thirty a.m. Get to the hospital around six a.m. Um, and get up around five a.m. Um, I'm able to do meetings between 6.30 a.m. and 8.30 a.m. or 8 a.m. So I can get some meetings done in the mornings and then many of the uh, meetings I do in in the afternoons after the cases. Um, Personally, I see patients one half day a week. Uh, That's Thursday mornings. It just happens to be the day that I do it. And then on Tuesdays, usually I stack most of my administrative meetings I'm able to um, orchestrate that, you know, whatever meetings I have a little bit of control over, uh, I typically can orchestrate that way. 
Um, so, you know, I'm in the hospital Monday through Saturday. I always, when I'm in town, I always come in on Saturdays. Um, it, it's, I love making rounds and doing teaching rounds on Saturday mornings. There's not the hustle and bustle of getting to the OR, and then I can sort of clean things up. Uh, every Sunday morning, I work at home. Um, I used to be in the hospital seven days a week, and um, I think because biblically, uh, we're supposed to rest one day of the week. My wife convinced me that it was uh, that that going into the hospital seven days a week is sort of too old fashioned. So I I, I did acquiesce to her. Uh, I was suggestion. Say, when did this happen? When did you start taking a day? So for <laughs> how long you have not been taking a day off? Oh, I mean that 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 was residency and junior faculty, and, and because we didn't cover for each other, we yeah. always went into the hospital and saw our own patients. We always had patients in the hospital, so um, you know that was very 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 common. That that was the way most people did it, yeah. quite honestly. Uh, um, but at least for ten years now, um, I've enjoyed my Sundays off. S- Sundays off working for a few hours yeah. in the morning just because, you know, that's the time that you can edit papers and chapters and be creative and um, plan for the administrative duties of the next week um, because there's a lot that goes into caring for patients but also caring for your residents and um, caring for your faculty because it's a, it's a, big, it's a big lift. It's a heavy lift uh, recognizing that... Um, Faculty have come to Jefferson to work in your department. You want to make sure you help their careers. You uh, can can mentor them appropriately. You can get them into the right organizations, and also, um, it, it's it, it it's a wonderful, wonderful leadership position. This is an amazing worth work ethic. Do you attribute this to anything to your parents to kind of maybe a mentor when you grew up? Because this is unusual, I think. Many people, you know, they work from 9 to 5, and they have the weekends off. Of course, we're in an unusual career, right, this healthcare field. Uh, but seven days a week, always on for a while. Did you attribute it to anything? Is there anything that you say, you know what, listen, these people, my parents taught me this way, so this is just the way it is? Or what's going on here? Uh, you know, I don't, in my mind, it's not all that unusual. So okay. I, I, I must say. Now, you know, my, my, my father... Um, was an executive, uh, started as a lineman for the Belltel uh, telephone company and rose to be an executive for AT&T, mandatory retirement 65. My mother was uh, a, a really, uh, uh, a lot of personality, uh, a Greek uh, Greek immigrant gal. Um, and Greek was my first language. But um, I, I, don't think the, I don't think the work ethic is that unusual, at least not, the way I was brought up um, in the sense that, um, and I don't mean just my parents, but yeah. I mean by my teachers and my, my mentors and my professors uh, and my, my fellow colleagues, because uh, we were all pretty driven and uh, we were all had a little competitive bug in us. And um, quite, quite honestly, what I said before, you know, if you're on call every other Day, you only miss half. You know, you miss half the cases. I'm not sure I wanted to miss much in the hospital. Plus, you're running a lab. You had to go in and, you know, check on the experiments, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, I, I didn't find it all that unusual. Wow. So let's talk a little bit more clinical, and then we'll get into what it's like to be a chair. So you clearly love it. I mean, you can tell by this work ethic and everything like this. What is the best thing about being an HPB surgeon? There's a couple components to it. Uh, um, I think the um, the ability to do a complex procedure and have a good outcome is clearly uh, a very motivating factor. 
a, a procedure that not everyone in the world is capable of doing, and, and even some of the some expert surgeons. So, so that that's one thing. The other thing is it's um, it's a great opportunity to teach um, the fellows, the residents, um, some technical aspects of surgery and how to focus on attention to detail, uh, recognizing that the patients are putting their life in your hands and that's a very special relationship. The other thing that makes it very satisfying for most patients is that we're able to accomplish something that provides them hope. Um, And there's a saying that the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network has promulgated, wage hope. So we in a sense, peddle hope, um, and not not in a nefarious way. You know, we give patients the opportunity to be cancer-free, either forever or, or for years and years. And that I think is, uh, and and you also see the um, the gratitude on the faces of the patients and the families. So um, it's an incredibly satisfying uh, field. Um, it, you know, I've had the opportunity to operate on children, on teenagers, on nonagenarians, even one centenarian, somebody over the age of 100, do a complex uh, pancreatic case. And so it does span a, you know, a wide degree of ages, um, and you, you can do a whole lot of good. And the counter question, of course, is what is the worst thing about being an HPB surgeon? Yeah, I mean, I... I guess there's there's two elements of that. One element is it certainly takes a toll on you physically, you know, standing in the OR for 10 hours, three days a week. So I think you have to be physically fit and keep yourself in good shape. And, you know, you don't see many uh, short of breath arthritic uh, people doing HPB surgery. So you have to have maybe good genes as well. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so th- there's a physical toll. The, the mental toll... Um, really comes from the patients who succumb. And, um, you know, the mortality rate from the Whipple operation in our hands at Jeff is about 1%. That's a very low mortality rate. But if you're, one, if you're the one of the hundred that dies post-op, um, that's, um, it, it, you're 100% dead. And um, I think... Many medical students and even residents don't recognize that when we take on these patients, we form a bond with them and we want them to do well. And uh, every operative mortality you have, um, I think, weighs on you. Um, I've kept a list over the years. I have a little, uh, essentially a spreadsheet of the names and the ages and the operations of people uh, who I've done the Whipple on um, that have not made it, uh, that, you know, haven't survived out beyond 30 days. And, you know, there's 20-some patients on that list uh, because I've, you know, done about almost 2,000. So, you know, there's 20 patients or so. And um, I look at that list every now and again. Of course, I add to that list uh, every now and again as well. And um, I recognize that I personally was responsible for shortening the life of, of some humans. I ha- you balance that with the um, the fact that 99 patients survived, and uh, I got a letter this week from a gal who is a 19-year survivor, and she sent me pictures of she and her husband in front of the Christmas tree. So I think you have to balance, you know, th- the fact that you can help people, 
that they're grateful and with the fact that what you do is serious business and you can uh, you can cause harm. You don't do it intentionally, um, but things can happen and patients may not survive. So I think that's one of the hardest things. Do you remember your first complication ever? And is this how you mentally dealt with it then? <clears throat> so um, on my list, I have my first, uh, and I do remember that patient. I remember the complication. Um, and I, I, I'm not sure that patient would die nowadays because we, we're better at rescuing patients, but sure. I mean, now, you know, I don't remember each of them individually without prompting by looking at my list. Um, and I think that's sort of human nature. We tend to, uh, sort of step behind tragedy and look for positives. And when, when that first complication happened, how did it affect you? Did it have a significant effect on you or was it kind of... It clearly affected me, and yeah. you know my wife can speak to this because she yeah. knows whenever I have a patient that's not doing well, yeah. um, I, I sort of bring that home with me, and she also hears the phone calls at night, and uh, so it becomes sort of a family, uh, you know, a, a family issue as well. And when the kids were younger, this same thing they they would know that you know, yeah. dad has a patient really sick. Um, you know, you, you, you basically um, you, you try to learn from each of these experiences and you try to move past it and um, it, it, you hope that um, that the lessons you've learned you can put into practice and, um, and, and make it so that the next patient uh, doesn't have the same trouble. But, it, you know, and let's face it, people walking on the street have MIs and strokes. So it's one thing if they die of something that's not related to your surgical procedure. It's another thing where you where you can see yourself and something that you've done as the mm -hmm. proximate cause of their demise. And and I think that's what some people struggle with. And that, that's where you use your family and your friends. <clears throat> and uh, we have a, a program here called RISE um, that, you know, you may need to talk to a... Uh, a colleague about it and have, have a cup of coffee. And I've done that with some of my junior faculty. So, And is this the advice you would give to junior faculty residents when they go through their first Share your turmoil. Share yeah. your turmoil. Share your turmoil. Uh, talk to someone about it. Um, have a conversation recognizing that we've chosen to go into a field that is not all upside. And, um, and, and you know, quite honestly, Zach, that has... The, the discussion we're having right now um, clearly influences specialty choices amongst surgical trainees. For example, <clears throat> um, if you are an individual that does not do well with complications that can lead to, to death, um, then there are some specialties that you can choose. Um, for example, uh, you know, thyroid and parathyroid surgery is generally not uh, surgery. It can lead to certain complications, um, you know, hematoma, occasionally wound infections, uh, recurrent nerve injuries, you know, funny things with the voice, but patients don't typically die from your complications. Ditto, for example, for melanoma surgery, for example. Uh, breast surgery would be another example. On the other hand, um, you know, trauma, HPB, transplant, burn surgery. Um, those patients have terrible physiologic abnormalities. They're, they're undergoing major, major procedures and a percentage of them are going to die. No matter how good you are, patients are going to die. Wow. 
Wow. Well, that's very helpful. I think share it with others, I think, is great, is great advice. Um, now transitioning a little bit. Now you're the chair of surgery. You've been the chair of surgery for a decent amount of time. How is this different? Is it what you expected being in this significant leadership position, right? Was there anything unexpected about it? Were there things that came up? You're like, wait a second, I have to deal with this as the chair of surgery? Anything at all about this position that was kind of new or you didn't expect? Well, I had the uh, opportunity to be a division chief of a division of 20-plus people at Hopkins before I came to Jeff. So when I came to Jeff in 05, the size of the department was about the same size of my division at Hopkins. So size-wise, you know, uh, it was about the same. But um, the opportunity to lead a department, I think you can't underestimate what a great honor that is. And, um, you know, I was so honored to be offered the job as the 8th Samuel D. Gross professor, one of the iconic uh, historical figures in American surgery, the so-called emperor of American surgery. <clears throat> but to get back to your point, so it, it, it's a job beyond the clinical job. The administrative job is always there. You are you need to be available 24-7 to help the staff, the residents, the faculty. Um, you need to be available for unexpected moments, um, you know, disasters, crises, um, whenever the hospital goes on alert, you know, whenever there's, a, um, you know, an active shooter. I mean, so no, no question that, um, it's not like a banker and at five o'clock you can walk Clock away out. And, and, you know, by nine o'clock the next morning you'll be back and whatever happens at night happens. Um, so that, that's an important element of it. And, and with that comes incredible responsibility. The, the incredible upside is you, you get to help, help very, very smart, motivated people who have worked really hard to get to where they want to be and I'm talking about faculty residents, help them turn the page on their life and, and have a successful career. And, and you get to see them uh, get married and have children and raise families. And uh, anyway, that's one of, uh, it's almost been, now I'm in my 18th year. Um, you know, it, it, it's wonderful to see a, a community grow around a department. And that's something that really provides not only me, but my wife a lot of pleasure as we've seen these, these bright young stars uh, grow and mature and have families and, and you know, go on with their lives. Um, so, so there's a lot of really positive aspects of it. It seems like you've chosen to work in academics, in an academic institution as well. What do you think are the best things about working in academia, I guess? And it sounds like this is one of the reasons, being with these amazing students, these residents, these uh, faculty. Yeah, I mean, I, I quite honestly, I've never been in private practice, yeah. so I'm the wrong person to ask for, sort of for the dichotomy, uh -huh. although I have friends, and I, I think I understand it somewhat. Um, you know, we, we are so blessed to be able to watch college students become medical students, medical students become residents, um, to, to light a fire, to, to see... Uh, to see people get uh, really excited about some element of their of their career, um, it, you know, it's fun when a faculty member um, gets a gets a grant or gets an award, um, 
or, or gets married or have personal things. Um, it, it, it's incredibly um, gratifying to see residents and faculty present at national meetings, uh, to have, you know, hot peer review publications, uh, to have had a couple faculty write books of their own, you know, to see them um, contribute to the literature, become authors on their own. Um, you know, these are the things that, that really make it all worthwhile because, the, you know, they're, they're every not a day goes by there isn't some problem that, that gets brought to your attention. And, and so a lot of it's problem solving. Mm-hmm. Um, but you do have, you have considerable autonomy. You know, the, one of the, um, it's Atul Gawande, I think, writes about um, what makes things satisfying and autonomy, complexity, and some sort of, uh, um, uh, uh, some sort of relationship between effort and reward. And those are the th- three elements. And I, I think there's a lot to be said that as, as a leader, uh, you have autonomy, you clearly deal with complexity, and you can see um, reward being linked to your own effort and the effort of others. Now, being a leader, be interacting with residents and medical students all the time, two questions. What are the best medical students like, and what are the best residents like? There's probably not a whole lot of difference between the answers Got to those it. questions, okay. right? I mean, I think um, being present, being enthusiastic, being knowledgeable, being willing to learn, and then um, uh, recognizing the incredible honor it is to care for another human being. Now, you can you can add to that and say, you know, writing a paper, working on a project, I mean, doing research, I mean, all those things are additive, but I don't think you can discount the sort of availability, presence, enthusiasm, knowledge, technical skills, et cetera, et cetera. Got it. And say you're a third-year medical student and you know for sure surgery is the thing I want to do, I'm applying into surgery. In your experience and with your advice, what do you think is the best things they can do to become the most competitive, the highest, the most wanted applicants into a surgical program? Yeah, so, you know, win a Nobel Prize and get an NIH grant. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, obviously, so I think you have to step back a little back from that question, Zach. Okay. Um, Individuals, so there are dozens and dozens of excellent surgical training programs yeah. in this country. And as I always say to, to our uh, medical students, and they're not all in the Northeast and they're not all in the Philadelphia mm-hmm. region. So one of the big things is, you know, have a broad geographic goal. Be willing to step outside of your, um, of your comfort zone. Mm-hmm. What makes, a, a, for a good medical student, on paper, and then it's the Zoom interview. And by the way, there's this thing called the match where a computer's going to match mm-hmm. it up. So this is the first time for many of you, you're a senior medical student, yep. now you're going to undergo the match yes. soon. <laughs> Scared. Uh, a computer's going to tell you where you're going. Yeah. You know, it, it, this is not your choice. Yeah. Now, yes, you're going to compose a list, but that list, not everybody goes to number one on their list, as you're well aware. So for, for a third-year medical student, Academics matter, clearly. 
we used to say board scores mattered, but we're going to pass fail. So, you know, that's going to be, obviously most people are going to pass. I mean, it's going to be a rare, it's going to fail. Um, your um, exposure to surgery and surgeons such that you can get good letters of recommendation. Um, for many of us, your work in the community, um, socially responsible things, um, so showing some um, empathy for, um, for, for social uh, issues. And then clearly, um, particularly if you want to go to an academically structured program, program that would you'd be more likely to end up in an academic job <clears throat> have you participated in research projects um, do you have publications um, how many of them do you have what you know what level of it by that I mean a case report is on the lower end of the scale working on a large project with you know prospective randomized trial or a meta-analysis better so I think those are the the elements got it who was your favorite historical surgeon yeah, I, I would say uh, um, I'm going to pick two. Got it. Uh, because of my background, and this won't come as a surprise to people that know me. Number one, obviously, I am the eighth Samuel D. Gross professor. Yes. I've learned a lot about Samuel D. Gross. I've read his two-volume autobiography. It takes an unusual person that writes a two-volume autobiography. <laughs> um, so Dr. Gross was an amazing figure and a nucleating figure in American surgery. Uh, even though he shunned uh, Listerian antisepsis, but uh, scholar, uh, amazing person. So Samuel D. Gross, and then William Stewart Halstead, um, who was the first professor of surgery at Hopkins, um, who um, really built the Halstead surgical training program, um, who um, had a very uh, difficult personal life, um, who uh, first experimented on topical cocaine, became addicted to cocaine, switched his addiction to morphia, and um, and yet is revered by many as uh, the ultimate one of the ultimate detail-oriented surgeons who um, operated in a time when anesthesia was present, so that he could be slow and meticulous. So I would say it's gross and Halstead. Wow, I got Should I pick up volume one or volume two or both? Um, volume one's probably the more interesting. Next question I have. Do surgeons have a responsibility to advocate for social change? And are there any certain changes that you would like to see? So, you know, I would argue they do. Uh -huh. Although, you know, clearly some people are reluctant to get, get involved with social issues. Yeah. And, and I, I got that. But um, certainly... Um, I believe that it's important for most surgeons to be involved, to be socially responsible. Um, and a, a good example is we, in our department now, we are joining a, a relatively new group called uh, Socially Responsible Surgery. We're going to have a chapter here at Jefferson. <coughs> um, and, you know, what are the important topics? Well, women's health issues, you know, incredibly important. Um, gun Gun, gun violence in America, particularly on the heels of what just recently happened in California, Half Moon Bay and Monterey <coughs> down in L.A. And, you know, so th th these are top. But also, um, you know, beyond gun violence, uh, ac uh, geriatric falls and uh, protecting athletes. Uh, so concussion, you know, um, brain injury, uh, helmets. 
Um, there, there, there are many elements. We have the Jefferson Center for Injury Research and Prevention headed by Stan Miller. It's, it's a great area that, that students could get involved with. So yes, I mean, the, these are important issues. And, and also there's the political climate in America today. And I, you know, I won't give away my uh, politic necessarily, but I, you know, I think it's important that, you, um, that surgeons um, play a role in at least their local politics. Got it, got it. And that they vote. And they vote. A vote. I think I definitely vote. Yeah. Definitely vote. Yeah. Any advice for graduating medical students who are about to be practicing physicians for the first time ever? This could be even directed towards me because in a couple months in July, I'll be a practicing physician for the first time ever. Anything we should think about or have in our heads as we begin treating patients as MDs? Yeah, so, um, you know, it is an incredible blessing to get to go to college, get to go to medical school, and then do a, a residency in, in any field. Uh, because um, there are many people who wanted to be, Zach, where you are right now, who, who couldn't, didn't make it for whatever reason. Number two, the, um, the physician-patient bond, um, as Osler talks about, um, is a very, very important bond and one that you, you shouldn't dismiss at all. Um, that's number two. Number three, um, it is incredibly important to keep up with the literature, to understand new advances. Um, when I graduated med school, I asked my dad for a new car. He said, no, what, what, what's your number two on your list? I said, I want a subscription to the New England Journal of Medicine. And he uh, wow. bought me a one-year subscription. Back then it was like, you know, $3 or something. It's wow. hundreds now. <laughs> But, you know, I, I, you know I, I, I'm a surgeon, and yet I have read the New England Journal cover to cover every week since I graduated medical school in May of 1979. And that's important. I think it's important, whether it's the New England Journal or JAMA or Lancet or whether you do it online, you know, through some sort of listserv or whatever. Um, I think you need to keep up with the literature. It, it, number one, it's helpful at cocktail parties when people ask you about things, you know, and I've learned all about AIDS and Ebola and COVID. and COVID. I mean, just keep up with what's going on. I think, you know, the responsibility is yours to be, have an incredible fund of knowledge and make sure that you're, you're keeping up as best as you can. Um, those are some of, and then please um, understand that in order to serve your patients well, you must be healthy yourself. So don't, um, don't neglect taking care of your teeth, your body, uh, exercising, you know, eating healthy, etc. Awesome. So very important question here. How is surgery like basketball? Yeah. So, you know, people joke there is no I in team, right? There's no I in the word team. There's also no I in the word basketball, and there's no I in the word surgery. So I, I would say the 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 team sport, um, the analogy is very clear. When you play basketball, you walk from your dorm, from your house, you go to a locker room, you put on a uniform and you go out and you work with people. When you're a surgeon, you go from your house, you walk into a locker room, you put on a uniform, happens to be scrubs, it's not short shorts, um, thankfully, <laughs> and you work with a team. And so there's, there's an awful lot of similarities recognizing that um, there's no I, 
and uh, th- there's no room for sort of prima donnas or, or, or people who, you know, refuse to be part of a team. And there's a great book, one of my favorite books in the whole wide world, uh, written by uh, the uh, Hall of Fame coach at Princeton, a fellow that just passed away just a few months ago, Pete Carrill, who, um, you know, tried to recruit, successfully recruited me to go to Princeton. I wasn't good enough to play very long, but, but he wrote a book called The Smart Take from the Strong. The Smart Take from the Strong. And it's a wonderful little book. Um, has little anecdotes in it. Pete was famous for his little sort of aphorisms and sayings. And one of the things that, uh, at, the, at the end of the book, there's 25 little things to remember. There's a list. I'm sort of a list guy. There's a list of 25 little things to remember. And one of the things on the list was you want to be good at things that you do often. And I always joke, you know, if you're the best person in the world for fixing a, you know, make something up, an RV aneurysm, but there's only one of those in the world every year, who cares? So you want to be good at, 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 at things that you do often. And then uh, the other really important issue uh, in basketball, fundamentals are very important, basic, you know, dribbling, passing, seeing, cutting. So you want to be good at, at those things that, that you do a lot and uh, pay attention to detail. So a lot of similarities. That's amazing. Well, this has been fantastic, Dr. You. I have one last question for you. If you have any closing words whatsoever, maybe for medical students that are interested in surgery, maybe for healthcare practitioners in general, maybe for people who are interested in Philly sports and watching what's upcoming soon, anything at all whatsoever, Dr. Yo, as we close out here. Well, I'll certainly be rooting for the uh, for the Eagles coming up against the Niners, and I hope that the Eagles can make it uh, into the into the Super Bowl and Me win too. their second. You know, I, I'm a big sports fan. I uh, I was in the stands when the Phillies won the World Series in 08, uh, and that was exciting. I was in Kenya with my wife uh, whenever the Eagles won their Super Bowl. Uh, But, you know, sports are something that unifies us all together. So, uh, you know, clearly it's important to have interest outside of the hospital, whether it's sports or art or music or, you know, reading. Zach, I see the books that are over here on your stand. You have a, a whole shelf of things that you're planning to yes, read. Yes, the top so. shelf are the things I'm going to read, <laughs> yes. and the bottom shelf yes. are things I have read. So the, the top shelf, as he pointed out so nicely before. A, a little bit larger than the bottom, but, I mean, you, you've read some good stuff. You know, I, I, um, be, be, be well-rounded, be, be well-rounded, and have passions outside of medicine, um, clearly. Thank you so Zach, much, Dr. Yo. Thank you for giving me the chance to do this. I appreciate the time. Thank you. Perfect. That was fantastic.